Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 30 of the Speaking Club podcast. Today I have a lawyer on the show. I find the law fascinating and I'd love to have been a judge, but I'm rubbish at finishing sentence. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Well, hey there. Thank you for stopping by again. As you know, this month, we're all about discovering ways to make your presentations more memorable, even if the subject matter is dry, complex, and maybe a bit technical. Now, I know even if your content doesn't normally fit into this description, it will be inevitable that some aspects are probably difficult to get across. And I'm sure you're going to get value from the fab guests that are joining me this month. So before we start, if you are enjoying The Speaking Club, I just wanted to ask if you could do me a big favour and leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. Some people uh, email me or my guests directly to say how much they enjoy the show and that is such a nice thing to do. It's fantastic. Really appreciate it. Okay, so today my guest is Malcolm Gregory. He's a lawyer, a speaker and a trainer, but he hasn't always been the confident communicator that he is today. And we're going to find out what secret he discovered that transformed his speaking, his top tips for making your content engaging, why and how you should use stories and lots, lots more. So without further ado, let's get this show in session. Thought leader, law firm partner, speaker, and all-round nice bloke, welcome to the Speaking Club, Malcolm Gregory. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. (laughs) Good. Now, Malcolm, the theme of this month is making the mundane memorable, and I'm talking to speakers who have to convey difficult and or technical information and yet manage to make it compelling and engaging. And I think I think employment law could come into that category. So, I mean, how? I should say. Yeah, although it's more exciting than other forms of law, I think, in some ways. But um, how have you developed the ability to to distill the complex into relatable content? Um, I'm not sure I've developed an ability. It's just something that that sort of happens naturally. And if I'm completely honest with you, I might have been a lawyer for 25 years, but I don't like detail and I don't like complexity. So whatever I'm doing, I have to understand it in the context that I can can make sense of it myself. And I think that just means that I I wouldn't like to say I've done it down, but I put it in terms that I can talk to people about just simple, straightforward concepts. Um, And that takes quite a lot of hard work, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I've seen employment law myself from, from my past, uh, and it is complex. So, I mean, is it, are you able to grasp the complexity of these laws immediately? Or, do, I mean, assuming from what you said, you have to work at it, and then there's the next yeah. level of, of actually distilling that into something that's comprehensible for people who are, are effectively lay people. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fair to say that I have to work extremely hard at it. 
there are um, there are a few things that pop up from time to time where it's clarification of a point that I'll be dealing with day to day, so I don't need to think too much about it. But when it comes to groundbreaking law, when it comes to Supreme Court decisions or just new legislation, it takes a huge amount of background work to understand it at the level that I feel comfortable that I can just give the basic principles in a couple of simple sentences. I know it, it often looks as though the lawyers have got it all nailed from the moment the legislation comes out, but I can guarantee that's not the case. <laughs> and did you, I mean, I mean, you said you've been in law for like 25 years now. Was, was that a, a career you always knew you wanted to pursue or was it something that sort of came up as, as you went through, you know, sort of ac- academic life and so on? How did it come about for you? Um, it was a bit of an accident, is the truth. So <laughs> I was at school. Um, one of my family had been to university, so a very working class background. And somebody in my career as lesson once said to me, um, why didn't you think about being a solicitor? And so I didn't know I couldn't. So I thought, oh, fair enough. And that was it. Okay. And so I gradually went through um, scraping my way through my uh, my articles and then qualification ultimately. But it wasn't something I had planned. It, w- it wasn't a vocation that I set off early uh, early doors thinking to myself, this is definitely something that I'm born to do. Absolutely not. And and do you do you love the law? <laughs> Um, I don't know that I love it. It pays the mortgage. <laughs> it's, it's one of those, it, it, it does consume you, I have to say. It does take up a huge part of every waking hour just because of the nature of it and the fact that certainly employment law changes all the time. You have to keep on top of it. Your clients um, have, as you might, as you might expect, um, needs which they want dealt with quite quickly. So there's always something to be done. Yeah. Um, and I do, I, I do, I think I enjoy certain aspects of it, but there are certain bits that are mundane. And the mundane bits are the, the, the same advice that you give time and time again to the same client, frankly. Um, that does happen. Yeah. I suppose as you move on in your career, do you get less of that? You know, as you move up the sort of the ladder, do you get, do you, do you manage to get access to more of the interesting stuff or is that that mundane stuff you never get away from? It varies. Um, there is some some challenging stuff that you get uh, to deal with, but equally, if there's a client that wants you to deal with a particular case, um, I call it the grey hair effect. So somebody else perfectly capable of dealing with it, it's not complicated law, but they want you to advise on it. Um, they have to pay a little bit extra for the grey hairs, but nevertheless, it, it you know it can be quite mundane in that sense. But um, that's a choice for the client more than anything else. So as long as they've got the cash to pay for the grey hair, that's, that's okay. <laughs> I think that's fair enough, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, and I'm, I'm assuming you've spent, I, I don't know, I might be wrong, but I'm assuming you've spent most of your career speaking and working with clients on a sort of one-to-one or one-to-few basis. But I mean, I know now you speak to larger groups. Is, is that something that is part of the, the, the role or is something that you've developed or was an accident? How did that come about? Um, I was I was thinking back as you were talking then to when I first started doing presentations and when I when I went into the law originally when I managed to get a law degree my parents were slightly surprised I, I think and um, I can remember telling them that I didn't want to do advocacy because that was absolutely um, it, was, it was too scary it was, I didn't want to stand up in front of people let alone a judge and then as I went through and eventually came to this firm I went on a um, presentation course. And it was the presentation course that unlocked for me 
who I was and what I was able to say. Because before that, giving presentations, which was necessary, um, used to scare the hell out of me. But it all changed from that point. It was about 15 years ago. And, and what do you mean when you say uh, it, it unlocked who I was? Um, well, just in terms of presentations, I'm, I'm very firmly of the view that if you're going to give a presentation, just give it as the person that you are and not somebody else. You don't have to pretend. You know, people are going to be there or they're not going to be there. Ultimately, if you're giving presentations and nobody's turning up, it may be because of who you are, I guess. But if people are still turning up, they, they obviously like it. So you might as well just be yourself. Excellent. And so, so you before that, had you had some idea that you needed to be you know, some sort of different animal when you were speaking? Yeah. Is that what stopped you? Yeah, so, exactly. I had to be somber, serious, and technically outstanding. Because if you're talking to another lawyer about a technical point, then you're going to be pulled apart if you, unless you know the detail, unless you're able to explain it in a way in which another lawyer would accept it. Um, and I have to say, most of my professional career, I've not been presenting to other lawyers. I've been presenting to HR professionals or people who don't have the same... Um, day-to-day exposure to the law so it's a it's a different it's a different thing mind you but um, I can remember coming to the realization that it was okay to stand up in front of a room and have a Bristolian accent and you know it was fine to crack the old joke every now and again I think it's I think it's um your accent works for you actually I think and you know in, in comedy you've got an accent or you know something a shtick it makes life easier in some ways so that's quite it's quite nice yeah Good. yeah I can remember I went I went to college in London and nobody had accents because uh, they were all basically Londoners and I can remember trying to drop my accent, trying really, really hard not to sound like I was from Bristol. And then eventually when I became slightly more comfortable with who I was, it appeared. And it can come back with a vengeance, especially if I'm anywhere near Bristol. <laughs> Excellent. So you, so you did that presentation course. Did you, did you find that al- although that sort of opened up the door to feeling more comfortable did you still have the nerves when you were speaking and if you did how did you manage those i don't know that i get nervous i become aware if i've got a presentation but um, for me the the thing that kills the nerves is knowing what i'm talking about so it's it's in the preparation and i have to i have to be completely frank with you i've done some presentations where time has not permitted me any preparation uh, at all and I've walked into a room of 100 people having to talk, talk about the transfer of undertakings regulations and try and make it funny without actually having read the notes that somebody else prepared for me. That really was not pleasant. But I got through it and it was okay because I knew enough background information that I could talk it through in any event. But if I'm doing a presentation on something that I, I really know intimately, then I don't need to prepare and it flows much better for me so i don't get as nervous everybody gets that little twang in their gut just before they stand up but it doesn't usually last very long yeah and it's and it's a good sign i always think it's a sign that you're ready Mm. to perform yeah cool okay and so you have got this down-to-earth style just i'm just curious i know you you we, we touched on the the presentation course you went on what was it that was said to you that that made you feel you know able to tap into your own personality what, what was the sort of advice they gave or was it just something you got f- from the you know the, the whole of the course I suppose um, it was two things really one was a couple of hints and tips on what to do if you freeze 
So um, one thing that they talked about was dealing with questions, and another thing was um, how to open. So they give you some very basic tips, and one was what happens if you stand up and your mind goes blank? And it can phase you completely because you're about to say something, you've worked on this opening line really, really hard, and then it's gone. So I have a default position, and if you ever hear me stand up in front of an audience and say, don't you just love employment law, it means I've completely forgotten what I'm talking about. <laughs> but the minute my brain starts working, then I'm back on it again, and it's fine. So Excellent. little things like that. Um, so you've got a few of those in would, your pocket, have you? Well, exactly, and you do need them. And if the audience isn't really that engaged, and they're, they're sort of a little bit cool, then um, often questions can be difficult. So... Um, asking who's got the first question rather than has anybody got any questions just opens it up a little bit and so they gave me a few hints and tips which just gave me some confidence on that basis but the big thing for me in terms of the, the course it was a two-day course and everything we did was videotaped i'm sure you how long ago it was <laughs> uh, no digital in fact I, I, I found the old videotape the other day and watched it and um fell about laughing what they what they made us do was stand up on the first day in front of the five people that were on the course and just say a few words about ourselves. And then it was videoed and we went back in the room on a one-to-one with the trainer and we looked at it and reflected back on what it looked like and how we sounded. And by the end of the course, we were jumping around the room, we were flinging our arms, we were gesticulating wildly, you name it, we were doing it. Because when we were doing it, it felt really silly. But when you watched it back, the thing that stuck in my mind was actually it was nowhere near as bad watching it back as it was doing it. <laughs> and so if you if you do gesticulate, if you're yourself, if that's how you are, well, then just be yourself. Whatever you think people are judging you about when you're giving a presentation, they're probably not. And it probably looked completely normal. Yeah. And it was that that unlocked the, the, the concept of, well, just be yourself. If you wander around a bit, wander around a bit. Um, and I think it is people, it is a performance at the end of the day as well. You know, you're speaking, yeah. but, you know, in order to get that sort of engagement, you know, I think you need a bit of colour in your, in your talks to, uh, to, to make it engaging. Okay, so um, now I've spe- seen you speak a number of times and I know obviously you've got this down to earth style, and you, but you also use stories and humour. And is this something you've had to work to develop or is it something that, that you, comes naturally to you? Um, I think it, it's how I understand things. So I'm a very visual learner and um, I like to draw diagrams, but also a story puts context to even the driest subject. So after 25 years of having done this job, there's usually a story or a set of facts that you can use just to bring it to life. And in employment law, you know, until you do the strangest things, I mean, that's a, that's, sounds like it should be a TV show. Um, they really do. And, and you can pick them up and you've got them in your back pocket for that moment when you're trying to explain how a particularly difficult concept um, of discrimination works or, you know, just something along those lines. So I find stories are a really good way, one, to memorize the content because you've got that in the background and it, it are, will identify the, um, the legal point that you're trying to make. Yeah. But also it engages with people and it takes them away from staring at a screen yeah. and engaging with you instead, which I think is really important. Yeah, because you do, I mean, obviously when, you know, as I said, I've seen you before and you have, you have some notes that you give out which are quite dense, they, they, will, they would be their employment law, but you don't often use those. It's, it's very much, I think, I, I don't even think, I've, seen, I've used a flip chart, I think. I haven't seen you use many slides at all. 
No, I can't use PowerPoint. And um, sorry, I say I can't. I don't like to use PowerPoint. And if I'm forced to use it, it tends to affect the presentation. I find it um, quite restrictive. And I have, I have a, I, I tend to think out loud. So if I'm going through a process which isn't scripted in the sense that you know I know what I'm saying, so I'm, if somebody's asked a question. I'm thinking out loud. Having a PowerPoint behind me really just puts me off and tries to straightjacket me into a particular um, way of looking at things. And the only time I do use any aids are flip charts. So I'll sometimes draw a diagram if, if it's easier for me to understand what I'm talking about. And then hopefully if it becomes visual for everyone else, I get it too. Brilliant. Okay. And so how do you prepare for your talks? I mean, I know you, you said that's one of the sort of fundamentals for building you know your confidence in what you're speaking about have you got do you do you use the same method every time how do you do that um, i write really detailed notes so i mean you've said that my my notes are dense and they're dense for two reasons one is that i think it's great to have a lead behind where they, the, the audience don't have to really start writing a lot of detail they can listen and engage um, i know the opposite can be true as well where if you've got an audience and they're taking a lot of detailed notes, then they might be thinking more about it. But I think that interrupts the flow and I'd much rather make eye contact and engage them in a conversation. Even if it's a presentation, even if it's a monologue, I'd like to feel more of a conversation type um, atmosphere. And so if they know they've got 30, 40, 50 pages of notes that will say everything that I've said in a lot more detail to go back to, then they're more inclined to sit and listen. So that helps me. And also in the preparation, if I've written that many notes, then I know my material. So that's how I prepare. I just do detailed notes. And do you pick out the stories you're going to use in advance or do you just sort of wait and see if it's, what comes to mind when you're making that point? I, to be honest with you, I, it tends to spring to mind and I can do the same presentation five times and often it will be different stories just because they'll become refined or there'll be a slightly different angle to it. Well, the audience, if it's more of a discussion group, will be bringing out slightly different points themselves. So I've got in my back pocket a lot of different scenarios that, um, that I use. And I do think on my feet quite a lot as well. Brilliant. That's good. I think that gives that sort of bit of spontaneity so that you've, you've got the ammunition ready to use. It's just you pick the right one depending on the context and the question asked, basically. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. And do you enjoy speaking, Malcolm? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to spend an awful lot of time doing it now, whereas to start with, um, it was something which I considered to be just part of business development. And now people are paying me to do it and it's an odd concept. And I try sometimes to give some of the speaking engagements to, to some of my colleagues and I still get asked to do it. So um, I guess that it's become something that I, I'm known for doing and I kind of have to do now because it's part of my job. And anybody that does something for a living tends to resent it slightly. Um, but I have to be honest, if I have a really good group who are up for a bit of a laugh and you've got a couple of hours with them, I'll come away having done a presentation in a really good mood. A bit like doing some exercise, which I yeah. don't do really anymore. Um, you know, it gives you, it's the endorphin rush, but um, there are a few a few presentations I've done where I walk away thinking, why, why, why do I bother? <laughs> Excellent. And would you like to speak on something else other than employment law? I'm curious about that. If I knew something worth saying, 
So, yeah, absolutely. Whatever I'm passionate about, I've got lots of hobbies, lots of interests. And if I knew more than somebody else who wanted to know something, then yeah, absolutely, why not? Cool, cool. And so you're now, you're being, you're, you're, besides the business development, you're actually speaking professionally now um, to, to impart that knowledge. Because I know that, you know, obviously um, law firms and I suppose accountancy firms and professional services firms do use speaking as a way to grow um, business but it's something that you're doing now as, as as a sort of paid thing separately to that as well is that is that something that happens often um it's happening more and more often now so people are asking me to go in and present on whatever subject they want really but it tends to be um or a very popular course actually is doing presentations for managers and supervisors on employment law so that they can really grasp and understand and not be scared of what they can do day to day in terms of their management. So I find a lot of people don't manage or are scared to do um, performance management or disciplinaries or deal with grievances and that type of thing because they're not entirely sure what the law's about. And I've done it for long enough now that I can distill it down into a few hours and hopefully give them the confidence when they walk out and a decent set of notes, of course, so that they can go away and feel really comfortable with what they do. And that seems to have um, taken off. So I do quite a lot of that. I then do general updates as well for organisations. So an annual get together for a particular group of HR professionals, for example, they'll want to know what the latest is and trying to keep a group of 20 HR professionals engaged for a full day can be quite a challenge. But, um, you know, (laughs) throwing the old old lawyer joke usually goes down well. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got like a whole host of lawyer jokes in your back pocket too? I've got I've got eight pages. <laughs> I collect lawyer jokes. I mean, some of them are so bad as to be embarrassing, but there are a few funny ones in there. <laughs> Excellent. You haven't got any that, that spring to mind at the moment that you'd be happy to share? No, not that not that I wouldn't get told off for sharing. In fact, I have been told off a few times for a couple of jokes I've done. Oh, well, I don't want to get you in trouble. <laughs> um, and how much do you of your success do you think is correlated to your ability to make things? engaging and understandable is is that is that a, a rare thing in your profession no oh is it a rare thing i don't think it's a rare thing i mean there are some incredibly talented speakers who are lawyers um, and if you think about barristers as a profession that their their role is primarily advocacy so they have to be engaging they have to either engage a jury if it's a criminal case or they have to engage with the judge to the extent that they can get their points across so there are some absolutely brilliant speakers out there. There are also some absolutely awful speakers out there who are technically fantastic, but they, they don't really get the message across in the right way. And there are quite a lot of lawyers, in my experience, who love the law and love the detail of the law, but really walk the opposite direction when it comes to presentations. So um, I've won quite a lot of business on the back of presentation style. So some very large international law firms acting for uh, people that I'd like to act for. Um, going in and doing training for their managers and I've been able to pick up business on the back of my style being slightly different. I think it shocks people sometimes. They go to a law lecture expecting something, stereotypically expecting something, and then if I open with a joke, then it relaxes everybody and they think, well, that's not what I expected. And you've got their attention and hopefully you keep it then for the rest of the session. 
Brilliant, brilliant. No, and that, and that does come out. I mean, you've got a lovely style. It's it's definitely, you know, you make the laws, you do make it engaging and you make it entertaining. And, and I think, you know, that makes it easy, so much easier for people to remember what you're telling them, you know, besides the fact that they're, they're entertained. It makes it, you know, it sticks in people's minds. So it's, it's great. Do, do you yeah. think the law attracts people who like to perform? Or perhaps, you know, is it more of the, the sort of barrister side of things? where they are effectively on stage do you, or do you think it's just generally mm. i don't know i don't think it necessarily attracts natural performers um i think that if you want to be on your feet all, ti- all the time in court and want to be counsel then um you'll have that natural tendency and you'll feel comfortable with it probably already uh, but I, so many of my colleagues uh, and so many lawyers I've met over the years really don't like doing it. And if they do it, they do it in a way which um, doesn't necessarily always engage with the, the audience. So um, I'm not sure it attracts um, flamboyant speakers necessarily. Uh, I think it's a full cross-section of, of people. You can, In fact, you can be a lawyer sat at your desk advising clients on a one-to-one basis all day and never have to do a presentation for your entire career. And if you were, if you were advising someone, perhaps someone who was, who was working, you know, a junior member of staff that felt, you know, that, that was struggling with speaking, but would, ha- you know, is going to have to do it in that technical sort of detail stuff, what would be the sort of top tips that you would give them or coach them on to make the things more engaging? Um, throw PowerPoint away, only use it if you need to share graphs or pictures because I don't think seeing a word on the screen helps anybody it just turns the audience into people who stare at tv screens Um, so you want to make lots of eye contact and you really need to know your material so well that whatever it is you're trying to get across you can summarize it in a sentence at the end of the story at the end of the presentation it doesn't matter what it is and you have to do it so that you can understand it yourself in that context and I think that's what takes the time. So you might have to explain a new piece of legislation, which in theory is going to take an hour. But at the end of it, you want a couple of sentences, which are just going to really encapsulate everything that you just said. And if you can get to that stage, and you can do it in your own way, speaking at your own speed, um, with all the you know the things that your your family would recognise as being your normal characteristics, then it will come across really naturally. And I think that's probably that's my best tip. If I was required to do lots of formal speaking, reading speech, I just couldn't read a speech. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. In fact, in fact, it reminds me, it reminds me of a speech that was written for me not that, not that long ago. And it's brilliant. You know, every word on the page was carefully thought through. And I got as far as the first half of the sentence. And then I just completely made the rest up myself. But that <laughs> was, that's just, I couldn't help myself. And so I'm not, I'm not good at that type of thing. And if somebody wanted some tips on it, then I'd be the wrong person to ask. Okay, cool. Brilliant. Okay. And so in your view then, from people that you've seen speak, what makes the difference for you between a good speaker and a great speaker? Somebody that gives me energy and inspires me, that would be a great speaker. So the content is really important and a good speaker will get across content. But a great speaker makes me go out of the room and do something. Um, and tell everybody about it and keep telling them about it until they're bored of hearing it. And they, those sorts of speakers, I think, are few and far between. And when I see one, it really does make an impact. Yeah, and do, is that what you aspire to be like? 
I would say that um, if I could even get 10% of the way towards that, then I'd be really happy. I don't know too many people that go out of one of the presentations that I've done evangelizing about it. But uh, yeah, if I, can, if I could go from average to good or from good to a little bit better, then yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. I think you're underselling yourself a bit there, Malcolm. But uh, anyway, good. <laughs> well, thank, thank you for those tips. Now, I've got some standard questions that I always ask all my guests. Um, so the first of which is, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Uh, I guess it's made me comfortable with who I am. That sounds a bit, um, sounds a bit cheesy, actually. But um, I, I'm kind of in a position now I'm you know I'm well past middle age so I'm kind of who I am and take me or leave me and that gives you a little bit you can relax a little bit more when you get to that point so I think that that's what speaking has realistically done for me and what's what's been your worst I always say worst gig but worst whatever you call it in your terminology but is there been a, a presentation where you thought oh no that everything went wrong and it what what happened yeah, it wasn't everything that went wrong, but the one in particular that sticks in my mind was a um, badly presented gag, which wasn't really funny, which upset one person in the room of 80, and I was called out live as I did it. Um, and on reflection, I should have never done it in quite the way that I did it. But um, afterwards, the person, I spoke to them about it and apologized profusely if I'd caused defence as it wasn't my intention and they said to me oh we love your style it was just that it resonated at that precise moment so I had to say something um, but yeah if I could have crawled under a rock and walked away uh, or just disappeared I would have done so but clearly I couldn't and I had to carry on presenting for another 45 minutes oh dear it's, it's horrible when that happens I bet you I bet the thing is though you focused on that one person I bet you everyone else loved it it's always the way though isn't it I, I did get a lot of people giving me some support afterwards, explaining that they thought it was hysterical and, and being called out was unnecessary. But, you know, that you have to be mindful of, of yeah. how people feel about this thing. So. Brilliant. Oh, cool. OK, right. La last sort of um, standard question. Now, I, I was there's a book uh, called Think and Grow Rich by a chap called Napoleon Hill. And it's a it's a great book. It's sort of one of the sort of must reads, I think, um, for most people. And in this book, he has a mastermind group and it's kind of like a fantasy mastermind group of, you know, the great and the good that he sort of bounces ideas off. Um, and if you could choose anyone, well, actually three people alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional to be your mentors who would you choose and why i would choose as one of them sir john harvey james okay and i i had the pleasure of hearing him speak and he was one of the people that i would um say had a massive impact on me he came to a swindon event uh he must have been 80 i think when he spoke and sadly he passed on now but um his insight into business and what was required and watching the TV programs when I was growing up, I think the programs were called blood on the floor or something like that. It was about corporate life and family businesses and how to, how to put right those things that were going wrong. He just had a, such an incisive mind when it came to business and was clearly hugely successful. So he'd definitely be up there. Number one. Cool. Um, the other two, uh, that's a tricky question. 
Yeah, I'm just trying to think. So one of my one of my passions is playing the guitar, and I'm just trying to think of the vast number of guitarists that I admire <laughs> so much that I would get the most from. Uh, there are the cliched uh, views, you know, Jimi Hendrix, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? But there are some great fingerstyle guitarists who I'd just like to spend some time checking things through and understanding what inspired them and how they do what they do. Um, and actually, to be honest with you, I was going to say my guitar teacher. Well, why not? That's yeah, all right. Well, but the thing, the thing is, I, I, do, I do get to speak to him about things. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure that counts particularly. I have to think of a different one, wouldn't I? Um, oh, I don't know. He's going to ask you for a pay rise if he hears this or she hears this. <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely, you will. Yeah. Um, no, I would no. have liked to have spent some time, in terms of legends, I would love to have spent some time talking to B.B. King. I never oh. even got to say, see him play live. But that's somebody who developed a skill which was so legendary based on something that came so naturally to him. And I've seen some TV interviews with him where he tries to explain from a guitarist perspective what he does and how he does it. And a lot of it seems very simple, but it was so, so emotionally charged and the way in which he did it, and it really spoke to you in a different language. And just having a chat with him and understanding um, a few things about what, what he would take of my blues guitar playing, I, I, I think I'd quite enjoy that. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So are we having your guitar teacher and B.B. King, or is there someone else you want to add to that list, the third person? Um, I guess, is there a third person? This is going to sound really cheesy. I'm going to say it anyway. So I've, I've spent the last 20 odd years listening to all sorts of audio content in my car because I'm constantly driving around. And there's always an opportunity to listen to somebody's views on something and what, um, what their view might be. It might, not, it might not be something I share, but somebody who gives you a different perspective and motivates you to try something out. And I know he's, he's an international superstar when it comes to self-improvement, but Tony Robbins um, yeah. really did catapult me into that area in a way which I probably wouldn't have done. Now, you know, some people evangelize about him and some people think that he's, um, he's not for them. But for me, listening to some of, his, uh, some of his work really did make me think differently about who I was and what I was doing. So I guess I'd quite like to have a chat with Tony Robbins as well. Brilliant. So we've got John, John Harvey Jones, is that right? A BB King yeah. and Tony Robbins. Yeah. Brilliant. Excellent. Good. Well, th- I want to say thank you so much. Now, if anyone out there has an employment law issue or they're uh, you know, a business that wants to find out more about how to work with you and your firm, how would they, who, where would they go, uh, Malcolm, to find out about it's, it's Royds Withy King that you, you're a partner of, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Just come onto our website or email me directly. My email address is malcolm.gregory at com. And I'll put a link in the show notes to the website and, uh, and your email address too. Thank you so much for sharing those great tips and your stories and uh, giving us some insight into the life of, uh, <laughs> of, of a legal eagle. Um, really appreciate it, Malcolm. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, there you go. I love Malcolm's accent. Uh, to be honest, I think, you know, from conversation with him and from what I know as well, 
I think the takeaway here is to embrace what makes you different and to use it to your advantage to stand out. There's a lot of homogeny out there. You know, that's a word, but it is now. I'm using it. There's a lot of sameness out there. So it's good to be a little bit different. And well, thank you so much for listening as ever. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. So if you are on Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram, come over and say hi to me at Sarah Archer 15 on Twitter and Instagram, I think. I'm also on Facebook and also, I don't know what my LinkedIn ID is. I think it's Sarah Archer. Just look me up. I'm there. And if you're a fan of the Speaking Club, make sure you let other people know. Now, all that's left for me to say is go forth, prosper, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Hey, if you're listening to this show because you want to start speaking or have a big talk or pitch coming up and you want to make it the best it can be, then you made the right choice because this podcast is the vehicle that can help you get there. But I wanted to tell you about something that will get you there even faster. Something that incorporates all the hacks, tools and tips I've picked up from my years in comedy, theatre, marketing and coaching. And that's my blueprint for creating and delivering a story-led talk that engages, inspires, and converts. And the best bit is that I'll be sharing my blueprint and the mindset hack that will help you overcome public speaking anxiety in a free webinar masterclass. To register, go to thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass. This puppy gives you the soup to nuts for creating powerful talks that connect with and engage your audience every time. So grab your place now. That's thespeakingclub.com slash masterclass.